Hello, and welcome to this podcast presented by the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. Uh, Dr. Anthony Anya is going to speak about biochar, a product of ancient technology with possible global impact and new, and new opportunities for Alberta. And we're having a special session on les- lessons from the arrival city, the future of poverty, population, and environment in the urban landing pad. Um, it's with Doug Saunders at the university. Um, I just ask everybody to go to the microphone to the, uh, to my right to ask questions, and I'll invite Dr. Tag back. Thanks. Hi, Jim. Bev Mundell-Atherstone. Thank you very much. Um, I came in feeling very happy that Obama had won. And uh, after your talk... What a downer. <laughs> what a downer. <laughs> no, no. No, you should be happy. <laughs> anyway, I'm still pretty happy. But what I wanted to ask you is, um, as a second-term president, what do you think that uh, Obama can accomplish because he doesn't have to worry about being reelected? And uh, do you think that he can actually get through some of the things that you talked about as a good list for, um, I guess, for community, for the nation, you know, some of those really good points that you talked about at the end? Well, Bev, let me ask you what your opinion is first on that, if you have one. I I think he can get a lot done. Um, I think it depends on will. Um, but also the House of Representatives holds the purse strings, so that'll be a problem. But yeah. if he, they're saying he has a slightly stronger Senate now, so, and then maybe if he can put a few more people in the Supreme Court. So maybe, I, I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful anyway. Uh, yeah, I think certainly, uh, this isn't answering your question first, but I think certainly uh, Ruth Ginsburg uh, on the Supreme Court will retire. Uh, but that's just replacing someone who is to the left with someone who's center center left again. So, but I think she's I think she's been waiting to retire. She has cancer and it's difficult uh, business. We were talking about this at uh, this table about uh, what uh, President Obama can get done, um, and I th- I think we we thought he could get he could get some things done. Uh, I personally think there's going to be a lot of um, behind closed doors dealing going on with Bonner and the House of Representatives right now. And we'll see. It's going to, that's going to be a real test if they can avoid the physical cliff thing that's coming up at the end of the year and come up with something relatively decent and at least a little bit of a compromise. And we might see something out of uh, Obama's uh, term, uh, some good things. Oh, we will see other good things, I'm, I'm sure, too. I believe I didn't mention foreign policy at all. I should say one good thing I think that will come out uh, is that Obama has been working, believe it or not, at a more cooperative approach on foreign policy with other nations. I hope that's pursued because they desperately need to do that. 
Um, but let me say this. <laughs> if you're a two-term president in the modern era, your first term you spend trying to win your second term, and in your second term you're a lame duck. <laughs> it's it's uh, idiotic in a lot of ways. Knut? My name is Knut Peterson. Uh, James, thanks for your presentation. Uh, my question might be slightly off topic, but uh, did we get the, in terms of relationship with Canada, did we get the right president? Oh, boy, that's a hard one. I don't know. Uh, and maybe both of them would have been bad. Uh, it, it depends on, on uh, your calculation of things. Uh, in terms of foreign relations, Democrats have tended to be more protectionist in a lot of ways and not as friendly uh, in terms of trade with other states. But it, Mitt Romney very possibly could have created an economic situation in which the American dollar fell much more, in which case we couldn't sell our goods. <laughs> so, you know, it's just highly speculative. What I, I, don't, I don't think it, uh, in the main, I don't think it was much, too much of a difference, but it, unless there's some cataclysmic thing like the dollar in the U.S. going down. Uh, I'm Trevor Page. Um, I much enjoyed your presentation. Thank you. In the introduction, you said you would talk about demographics, I think. Yeah. And I wonder if you would elaborate on that. I mean, the demographics are changing very dramatically in the United States. I recognize you're a historian, but would you like to look into the future and comment on the changing demographics on the American political scene and the implications beyond North America, if you care to venture Okay. Far. Okay. I, yeah, I'd be glad to. This has been in. This has been the big issue in the last two or three days, as I said before. Um, there, uh, there's more than one demographic change, but let me talk about the one that's been in the news, and that's race, uh, and uh, Rush Limbaugh and the radical right have been complaining that their white America has disappeared. I think Rush Limbaugh said it's no longer his America because um, this new coalition of Hispanics and blacks and Asians have uh, now overwhelmed the, uh, their position. Uh, of course, it should be made clear that Hispanics, blacks, and blacks who voted in overwhelmingly for Obama uh, and Asians even more so, um, that you, they don't add up to a majority. A whole lot of white folks <laughs> to vote uh, Democratic as well uh, in this. But um, the left, uh, why do I call them the left? There's no left in the United States. The center, the center right and the right is what I consider it in the States. The center right, which is represented by the Democratic Party, uh, is gloating today because uh, they see a demographic shift based on race, race and ethnicity that is going to benefit them permanently and that the Reagan coalition, uh, well, really, the coalition started by Richard Nixon uh, with the South, that that coalition now cannot hold majorities, and so they're gloating on this. What bothers me greatly is that everybody's talking in, in pretty stark racist terms, or at least racist right on the surface, and that's a very dangerous thing in the United States to be doing. 
There was another thing, though, and I just checked that out this morning. Uh, urbanization. Urbanization is occurring everywhere in the world. We all look at China because China is going to have, what, 200 cities with a million people or more. Um, the United States has uh, become more urbanized steadily since World War I. And in 1928, uh, Al Smith out of New York City ran with this, with this very pronounced New York accent, ran for the Democrats, uh, lost. But the interesting thing was there's this big urban shift, and the Democrats picked up that, that urban population, and they've held it ever since. Barack Obama won big cities by 69%. That's big. He won medium-sized cities by 58%. That's also big. And so the demographic is partly rural-urban as well as being race, I think. And if you look at the map, the red states, uh, I have a hard time calling them red, the red states, uh, you know, all of the southeast United States sweeping up through the Midwest. These are all areas that are really kind of what we used to call farthest from the lines of communication. Uh, they're the least rich in terms of exchange of ideas and that kind of thing. And those are the Republican areas. Okay, I'll, I'll stop with that. Thank you, uh very interesting that presentation. Uh, I don't agree with 100%, but it's interesting. Uh, my name is Joseph Natuk, uh, former student of the uh, U.S. back in the early, I guess the late 60s, or early 60s. And uh, one of the things I uh, heard my professor tell me, or professors tell me in the U.S. history is uh, the situation that they were put in at that time as to uh, being kind of you know, people would come from the world to say, would you like to help us? Can you help us? We're in mm -hmm. dire straits. Mm -hmm. So that sort of seems to have continued. And uh, the, the impression I'm getting, and, and I think I'm kind of right, the, they're the first to step to the plate and help the world out. And whether it's uh, tornadoes, whether it's uh, disasters, whether it's uh, Syria or Israel or whatever it may be. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and also... The, the the world economy I think uh, uh, I, I think perhaps uh, certainly the U.S. is not in the greatest economy situation right now but I think the world economy as well has a tremendous impact on what happens there oh yeah bet yeah and so uh, you know I think we have to be very careful being too judgmental of what they're doing and I think we have to yep. keep our you know eyes and ears open to see what really is happening and I th I think well. Flaherty, our, 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 our current minister, just said if U.S. doesn't, you know, we're, we're all going to be in the same situation. So I want to, just your impression, because I, I think it's, it's, a, it's a second job, and I think a lot of them didn't really want to do what they're doing, but the world used to come to U.S., bail us out, yep. help us out Absolutely. in every situation. So just make an observation on that. Thank no, you. No, I'm very glad you brought those things up. That, those are very good points. The U.S. matters. And it doesn't just matter militarily, it does matter greatly economically. Um, and I think it's true, at least now not all historians agree with me, but I think that the Marshall Plan at the end of World War II was 
partly an altruistic plan. I mean, obviously, Americans thought that it would restore Europe so they could sell goods there and, all, of course, all of those things. But they also needed, knew that they had to restore Europe to restore civilization. And, uh, and you can't – well, I think that is really an important thing and it's a very pro-American thing. But you brought up immigration, and I, I always like to talk about this because uh, – um, I used to teach a uh, U.S. foreign policy class, not terribly well, but I <laughs> used to teach it. And uh, immigration is a subject that often came up. The United States, uh, you know, became a big immigrant country starting in the 1890s. But between 1900 and 1914, uh, they had their biggest wave of Im immigration in their history proportionately. Um, Studies have been done since on uh, immigration that have shown that 25% of those who emigrated to the United States returned to their mother country. And the estimate is that 50%, at least, wanted to return. So uh, we think of immigrants as being... Uh, deeply thankful. But immigrants leave a culture, and my wife taught immigrants for many years, and many of them too. I mean, if, if conditions had been different at home, they'd go, they'd go back. Um, so the immigration thing is, is a little uneasy. And the same thing goes then for Canada as it goes for the U.S. But I want to say, you brought this up, and it's very important, the U.S. has taken in a large number of immigrants. We in Canada tend to think of ourselves as multicultural. The U.S. is really multicultural, and they've taken a lot of people in. Uh, they're much more that way, in a way, than we are. We, are, we see the English-only thing and think that that's, that's the big barrier, but it's not the only Hi, my name is Gene Olexon. I'd like You talked at the end of your talk about the myth of uh, American exceptionalism. And I'd like you, if you could expand a bit more on that uh, in respect to how does it affect their foreign policy um, and in that vein. Well, it, it does. Uh, exceptionalism has long affected their foreign policy in terms that there's a missionary view uh, by, the, by the United States who see themselves as the author of, Ameri of democracy, of modern democracy, I should say, um, and they have some claim to that. It's true. Um, but um, much of American foreign policy, of course, doesn't really introduce democracy anywhere. It's usually half-baked kinds of things. And uh, the Americans cannot really fulfill themselves in, in – in foreign policy because of uh, exceptionalism, because their natural yearning is toward isolation. So they, in a way, they kind of see this problem over here. They want to go take care of that problem and leave and not be bothered by it again, rather than being part of a world that is continually changing and being really a full part of it. I'm exaggerating that. I'm sorry about that as a reply. But exceptionalism runs through a lot of American history. It's not as simple as I put it today. It runs through American literature. It runs through American philosophy. Uh, it, um, it isn't exclusive to uh, a, you know, a right conservative population. It's, it's, it's everywhere.
Terry Shillington. Uh, thank you for your presentation. Very thoughtful, very formative. Uh, <clears throat> I've been, in the wake of the election results, I've been pondering two pieces of information that don't seem to match for me, and I, perhaps you would comment. On the one hand, uh, Republicans as well as others are are uh, uh, observing that the Democrats have the, the minorities and they have uh, the women by and large and, and uh, so on and so forth and they may be reduced to a minority party and go the way the dinosaurs and so on. But if you look at the totality of the election results, uh, the Republicans have uh, two-thirds of the governorships and a massive majority, I think, in the House of Representatives and just one uh, seat short in the Senate. Uh, you could easily make a case that, uh, that they're far from a spent party, but they simply picked a less attractive candidate to run for president. Uh, do you care to comment? Uh, yeah, they are saying that today. Um, but, of course, I, I think that I bet most of you would agree with me if they'd run a candidate who was farther to the right or openly farther to the right, they would have lost more, uh, more easily. But you're right. I'm, again, this isn't that big a division of vote. It's a two million vote difference between the two candidates. The swing states were actually very close. As you point out, the House of Representatives is even more Republican than it was by a little bit. Uh, the Senate is more uh, Democratic. But um, this whole odd business of reelecting incumbents while at the same time uh, you know, about 9% of your population thinks, high, uh, thinks well of Congress just doesn't mesh. Uh, it's true, it just doesn't mesh. But I think you get this kind of result in Congress because people just don't see any uh, direction that, that anything's going in. If you had a direction, I think you'd see a whole lot of new House of Representative candidates that get elected. What I'd say right now is if you saw the creation of a new progressive party, as you did in the 1890s and then in the early 1900s. Now remember, the Republican Party was the one that became progressive in that period. And then the Democrats became progressive. There was a progressive party too, but they got shoved aside as the Republicans and Democrats picked it up. But if you had a, re a progressive movement, for example, I think that you would see changes in Congress and who got elected to Congress. Hi, my name is Bob Campbell, and thank you for your presentation. Uh, it was uh, you reinforced all my biases. <laughs> Mine too. <laughs> uh, Terry asked my question, so I had to quickly think of another one. What has always puzzled me about uh, the rugged individualism that you hear espoused by many uh, today in the United States, um, in terms of th this. Uh, heavy influence of Ayn Ryan and, and her book, Atlas Shrugged. I cannot understand that, and I'd like you to, if you've ever given that any thought or anything. It, has a, it seems to have a profound influence on that movement. I don't understand her. I'm sorry. I, I guess I don't. Um, but, again, John Ralston Saul, of course, claims that she is kind of the epitome of the corporatist idea where you, you kind of pull individuals away from everything and you make them independent. And then you're left with her kind of Nietzschean idea of the superhero, the person who, has to, who succeeds against this outer world. She doesn't seem to care about most people, but just these people who can, who can do that. I should say on rugged individualism, almost, almost all of it's hooey. Uh, I mean, uh, it's, it, it's kind of like 
the business of Western history. Everybody's so keen about the frontier and our, uh, Western movies in the United States and all that. The West existed for what? 20 years, maybe. Uh, and it was lawless, okay, if you like that kind of rugged individualism. But most accomplishments in the United States have not come from rugged individualism. They have uh, come from the spread of institutions uh, into areas they were not before. And those institutions, like education, have made a difference. Oh, and that's the other thing about demographics, of course. Uh, University-educated people are, are voting Democratic more and more. So even though you'll have a, a big Republican majority in Mississippi, people at the University of Mississippi will probably vote Democrat, a lot of them. Hi, Jim. I'm Henning Mundell. Um, I listen to a radio station on my in my car called XM Left, XM127, and they truly define themselves as left in contrast to the Democratic Party and then the mm -hmm. Obviously, they vote for Obama. But uh, uh, one, one of their uh, speakers yesterday or today made a very interesting comment, and I'd like you to comment on his comment. If... <laughs> If Mitt That's Romney <coughs> were elected, he would have become the president of the Confederacy. Hmm. Hmm. Well, uh, Hanning, I don't know. If, I don't know if I understand it altogether. Even. Well, yeah. Um, well, yeah, he did win heavily there. There's no doubt about it. But you could say he become uh, the president of the Plain States too. You know. Uh, he he added on there in terms of the racism also that went with the Confederate States. Uh, yeah, well, and I think attempts at disenfranchising uh, people during the uh, run up to the election, which of course various courts vetoed, but uh, the attempts. Well, certainly, uh, Mitt Romney was the whitest candidate you've ever seen. I, I'll say that. Uh, <laughs> just as white as you could possibly be, and so in that regard. Uh, I guess that um, it would be, uh, you could see it on the Confederate basis. He could have been in Gone with the Wind. He could have played, he could have played, what's the name of the guy? Um, Ashley? Yeah, Ashley. He could have played Ashley. Um, but I don't know. I think that's ex an extreme comment, uh, really. Um, what was I going to say, though, about, well, oh, and you also have, remember, look at the vote, though. A, people, a lot of people voted for Romney, areas he didn't win, but a lot of people voted for him. So, Mary Shillington, thanks, Jim, for your talk. It got me thinking about lots of things. But one of the things I, as a left-leaning Albertan, um, I'm thinking about Harper and how is he any different or the same as... You know, in, in America, in all the whole private versus public kind of issues, the business e economics, uh, no interest in research and evidence, that kind of thing. Uh, seems there's a lot of similarities, and uh, uh, I'm I'm glad Obama came in, but I'm worried, you know, how far right we're going and what's going to happen to us. Well, I do too, but uh, I, I also, um, being an American immigrant to this country. I am uh, I am enamored with a parliamentary system, in which if you push too far, you you're out. Uh, I think that um, Harper is a conservative like uh, the Republicans in regard to n not 
not recognizing true education as being important, that you really have to shovel a lot into that. Uh, and uh, so that would be a worry. But, you know, Stephen Harper, I mean, look at the contrast. Stephen Harper says that um, his party supports our, our health care system. Can you imagine a Republican saying that? Who wouldn't be con wouldn't be called in the next breath a socialist or a communist? I don't, I don't know. Just to fill in the time, Douglas Mitchell, thank you very much for your talk. I thought Terry might ask his question, but I'm uh, somewhat concerned about the rise of the religious fundamentalist right in America and where we as liberal Christians uh, embrace all faiths and what sort of influence you see in the future this evangelical right may have on future elections. Uh, now, that's a, an interesting question. Uh, well, I think two things are happening. Uh, one, slowly, the religious right is becoming less right. Um, more and more evangelicals in the United States are becoming socially conscious, uh, uh, social reformers. So there is some change uh, in, in that direction. The other thing is that the religious right, uh, at least those, for example, who... Um, who would associate their religious right position with climate change, for example, are just going to be proved wrong, and they're going to kind of be pushed aside on a, a lot of these things, which are, are just going to be seen as wrong. I don't think they're going to have the influence well, in the foreseeable future. I hate predicting, but in the foreseeable future, I don't see them having the influence they've had in the uh, recent past. Uh, that's what I... Uh, that's what I believe. I just have a little technical question. Mm -hmm. It's hard for him. Who's Mike? <laughs> Who's this Mike I have to speak to? Anyway, um, <laughs> what I was going to say was uh, I heard uh, some commentators say that because the Democrats had won the Senate, one of their powers would be the filibuster. I didn't quite understand why it would make that much difference. Well, under uh, Senate rules, they can uh, vote uh, not to end debate, uh, and that vote has to be two-thirds. That's 60 votes, and the Democrats don't have 60 votes. So they can't, uh, they can't stop debate. They can't stop filibustering on, uh, on an issue. And uh, they have, what, 58 if you count the independent from Maine, I believe they may be able to move some people, um, a couple of Republicans, when it comes to issues that really need to be addressed. It's hard to see. Uh, hard to know, though. Do you think? What do you think? Do you think they're going to be? You know about these things too. I mean. Well, I don't know. I think if they do it in public, John Boehner will cry a lot. So they should probably <laughs> probably do all that in, in private. Yeah. Um, but yeah. no, I have hope. I'm optimistic that. Yeah. Uh, it's that something uh, can happen. That, I mean, Congress has been so despised by most people in the United right. States that the time has come, I think, for them to to step up, and I think they may yeah. do that. I, it should also be pointed out that early in their terms of new senators, they can do a lot of things because it's six years until they have to run again. So they all senators have a certain independence. 
Um, and But then some of them thought they had a lot of independence, like uh, Richard Luger, who didn't even win the primary in Indiana after he was too moderate. Uh, still, I think there is some hope in the Senate, you know. Yeah, and it means I believe in evolution. So. <laughs> and do you? And it means, um, and it means appointments may be getting through. This this last period in which uh, the Senate refused to uh, ratify appointments and backing people up in the court system was just an enormous problem, and I think that'll get that'll get cleared away. Uh, and if a new Supreme Court justice is appointed, I don't think there will be a big problem unless, unless that person is, you know, has some problems. Thank you. Personal ones, yeah. Uh, this will have to be the last question. Hi, Jim. Thanks so much for a great presentation. Uh, in Canada, when we have elections, whatever level of government we're talking about, all of the polls operate under exactly the same rules. Do you think that that will ever happen in the U.S.? Uh, Fran, not without a constitutional amendment. Because the regulation of, we were talking about this before, of voting in the United States is uh, a state matter. And that's why it was so difficult in the 1960s to get a Voting Rights Act through uh, covering, uh, allowing blacks to vote. Uh, through uh, a federal mandate. So it, um, no, states will always have this control. And of course, they've been doing a lot of different things. This last campaign, um, there have been, there's been a move in Florida, Pennsylvania, and a few other places to restrict the vote through cumbersome registration systems. Um, and um, uh, so there, there's that continuing problem. It's a mess in the United States in regard to voting, I would say. Um, and I, one other thing in voting, I, I'd like to just bring up uh, off the topic you're mentioning, and that is uh, the ballot. The ballot is huge, you know, in some states. A few years ago, uh, California had a ballot that was 34 pages long, which would be longer than anything that everybody, anybody had ever read in their lives, for most people. So... <laughs> Oh, that's really. I'm sorry. That's. Not, but uh, the um, these ballots are long, and they they were there were a lot of propositions this year on the ballot, uh, important propositions on the ballot. Why do you wind up with lots of propositions on the ballot? You wind up with them because you don't have a legislative process that's working, and people take it into their own hands to do so through propositions. And that's a bellwether sign, I think, of whether things are going well in, in voting, candidacy and voting. Yeah, because even in, whoops, even in Florida, in Jacksonville, they have voting machines. So when the polls close, they've got the results. But down in Miami-Dade County, they were still using long paper ballots, um, which is why I don't know if Florida's declared yet. I, I thought they were still it's, voting. <laughs> I mean, no. the so last it, I looked, it really makes you wonder about yeah. a system that is yeah. so awkward well, Florida, and out of date. Florida is a is a state in which the Republicans tried to change um, issues of registration and so forth, and they also cut back on uh, the. Uh, who the amount of people they hired to to handle voting, 
And then they got hit with a kind of this low-level tsunami of voters, a lot of voters, and that's left them in the position they're in. Okay, well, thanks to Dr. Tag, and um, see you Thanks to all week. of you. I really enjoyed this. Uh, see you next week for our two uh, meetings. Thanks. Bye.